Wow. <laughs> when he talked about me being his protector, um, I thought straight away he's gonna, not going to tell that story. I was at high school and he was at primary school and there was this Maori guy that was giving him a hard time and that upset me and I wasn't at school to protect him so the bus came past, stopped at their primary school and I got off the bus because I saw this guy, he was a big guy. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> and I went over to him and I said, you're giving my brother a hard time and he goes, hmm, yeah. And, and I don't know what happened but I hit him. And he just dropped that cold on the ground and I walked back and he never had any more problems after that. I, I wouldn't do it like that. I think I've sort of progressed on in my Christian faith. Um, the teacher, the school teacher that was driving the bus, he says, did I just see what, you, what I saw? I said, I've got no idea what you saw. He said, you just hit that guy and he's still lying on the ground. I said, yes, sir, but he's been a pain. Okay then, that's all right then. So we carried on. <laughs> Things have changed today, haven't they? You know, <laughs> and I have too. <laughs> it's a joy to be here. Um, it's really a joy to be here and to be and uh, just sharing the conference. Uh, but it's I face it with some trepidation because to stand in the pulpit after um, Dr. Steve Lawson is some task really. Um, doing this reminds me of a story I heard many years ago about two native North American Indians who were um, signaling their friends or the other tribe across the valley or the desert and they were up on the top of this mountain and they didn't have cell phones or anything in those days but they had the smoke signals you know and they were had their little fire going and and smoking, they put a blanket over it and off goes their message to the hill that was two or three miles away that they could see. And there were signals coming back and they were communicating one another with these smoke signals. But little did they know, right across the Navajo Desert, was the NASA was actually experimenting with atomic bombs and they set off in a bomb that was an experiment. This huge cloud went up, this mushroom cloud went up into the sky. The earth shook and so while they were communicating I felt the earth shake and I looked around to see what was happening and, and here right across is this huge smoke cloud going up and one guy turned to the other and he says, oh boy, I wish I had said that. <laughs> Well, that's how I feel a little bit like with Dr. Lawson. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I love you this morning or this afternoon to open the Word of God to John 17. Jeff asked me here to this if I would uh, share and I could choose what I wanted and I chose this. Little did I know that Dr. Stephen Lawson has preached through the Gospel of John three times and he was telling us last night that he has preached 27 messages out of John 17. And so um, <laughs> I thought, how can I change my message? You know? <laughs> Turn to John chapter 17. I want to say that our text this afternoon is as profound as it is opposite to what the world promotes and what even our flesh would desire or by nature would practice. 
The text is as deep as it is intimate because it's the very heart of the Saviour who is about to become the sin sacrifice for the world. And our text this afternoon is as if the Lord Jesus himself takes us up in his arms and carries us really to the heart and the bosom of the Father. For surely it's the deepest longing of the Father because the Lord Jesus himself prays this. And so he takes us to his heart by praying this and sharing this with us because it's the heart of the Father that God's people, his own people, walk with him in truth. They glorify him by walking with him in truth. And so here's the text, John 17 and 17. Here's Jesus praying, praying to the Father. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus in John 16 has just told his disciples of the events that were about to happen and about to come upon them, that he was going to die and that he was going to return to his Father in heaven. And he tells them in figurative language that, that his death, about his death and his resurrection and that he had overcome the world. And he uses language as if he had already completed the task, but he could use that language because it was sure that he would complete the task. It was positive. It was uh, an assurance. It was a, a fact that Jesus was going to die. He's going to be buried. He was going to rise again from the dead. And he was going to overcome evil. He was going to overcome the world. And so he uses that language even though he hadn't yet gone to the cross. And he had the full assurance of the Father, that the Father, his own Father, the Heavenly Father, and his supreme omnipotence would actually raise him from the dead and he would overcome the world. So he could use that language. That's in John chapter 16, coming into this time when Jesus prays now to the Father. And I would presume, too, his disciples are still around. If you read the context and you flow through, I think the disciples are here listening to this prayer. And so we come into John chapter 17. And it's to the Father that Jesus turns now in this incredibly deep, intimate prayer. And in the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. But I want you to notice in those five verses something that he prays, a focus that's there. There's a focus that God, his Father, is center to it. Look at verse 1. It says here, and I'm just going to read bits and pieces of verses as we do our introduction and coming into our message. It says, glorify your Son that your Son may, glor may glorify you. On the heart of Christ is to bring glory to the Father. Even though he's facing death, he still wants to bring glory to the Father. And he says, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' prayer is focused on the Father. And when we come to verse 3, he's talking about eternal life. And he says, I've, he's given it to all those who belong to him. So God is still focused here to know God. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, he's given eternal life to you and to me and to these immediate readers here who were his, so that you and I might know God. That's what he's given, and that costs a cross 
and a pathway to the cross so that you and I can have eternal life, so that we may know God. You see, his focus is his Father. And in verse 4, Jesus tells the Father that he's brought glory to God by accomplishing the work that the Father has given him to do. You see, it's all about the glory of God. And then Jesus, in verses 6 to 19, he prays for the disciples, or he prays for the apostles, and those who already belong to him. And his prayer, again, is focused on the work of the Father, and it's as if the apostles themselves were now the ones to continue the work, and in reality they were. They were the ones who were to continue the work, and that's the sense of those verses 6 to 19. And Jesus prays that the Father keep those people in his name. And he prays that he keeps them safe from the evil one. And he prays that the Father set them aside in the truth, and that they serve the Father even as Jesus has served the Father. You see, don't lighten this prayer. This is an important prayer. This prayer comes from the very heart of God because Jesus only ever says the thing his Father wants him to say. And in this prayer here is exactly what God wants him to say and wants him to pray. And you see, so we're getting in John 17 and verse 18, it says, As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And so we should be getting the idea here that there's a task for us to do. Jesus brought glory to the Father by completing the work that he had given him to do. And he says, Father, as you've sent me into the world, so now I send them into the world. We should be making the connection already that there's a task for us to do that's as important as even Jesus' task in regard to bringing glory to the Father. We will bring glory to the Father. That's our role. That's our task. And now in the rest of the chapter, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for the church. He prays for all those who are to be saved through the preaching of the word that the disciples and the apostles were to do at that time. And those saved objects, uh, or those saved people, they're the objects of the work that Jesus was praying about. And so here's Jesus praying. He's praying for his disciples, and he's praying that their disciples, the word that they preach, he's now praying for the people. That's you and me. We are the ones here that Jesus is, being, is praying about. It's for you and for me and the work that we're to be doing for the Father. Jesus, in that garden, was praying for you and me and for the work that he wants us to do. And so we ask, what is he praying? That we be the theatre or the stage for the Father to shine forth his glory. That's an incredible task. Look at John 17, verses 21 and 22. It says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may also, that they also may be in us, so that, what for? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may know that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, Jesus' whole prayer is about the glory of God. It's about the glory of the Son, and it's about the people doing the work that Jesus now can't do because he's going back to heaven, and it's about bringing glory to God and the things that he's asked us to do. 
the world needs the church. The world needs the Christian person to shine out the glory of God. We've got a task to do and God wants us to do that task. He wants us to live and to walk and to breathe the task that God has given us to do. He wants us to breathe in the truth of God so that we can live out the truth of God for his glory. And so Jesus prays this prayer because he knows it's the only way his people, God's people, that's every believer, can do the things that God wants us to do. Hear it right here. He understands that. And so he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's no other way to fulfill the task that God has called us to fulfill. There's no other way to do it. There's no other passageway cutting corners to do something else for God to bring him to glory because you can't do it unless you're set apart in the truth. And so Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. So there's no other task for the Christian than to be the theater in which God works and uses where the world is looking on the stage or on that theater, on that person to see the glory of God. That's what Jesus prays. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So to help us grasp the importance of this aspect of Jesus' prayer this afternoon, I draw your attention to two aspects of what it means to be sanctified. This will highlight the importance of the word of truth. The word of truth is the divine means for our sanctification so that we can bring glory to God in the life that God has given us to live here in this world. And so there's two aspects of what it means to be sanctified, but in the first aspect that I want to bring out, there's two or three points under that, and I'll give them to you as we go. And so the first thing, even before we get there, I want to say something about the prayer that Jesus prays. Notice in verse 1, Jesus not only prays, but he prays aloud. And surely this has the effect of drawing close those disciples that were listening to him in a very intimate communion with him and the Father. You see, if you go through from chapter 16, you're coming through into 17, and Jesus is praying, he's praying out loud to his Father and his disciples who are around. And I just want you to imagine what that would have been like, hearing that prayer. What an incredible prayer that he prays. But just imagine it. They would have been joining with him, listening, with giving mental and heart affirmation with Jesus and even probably saying the amen from time to time and probably asking, what does he mean by that or whatever. But this prayer takes them into the awe-inspiring future that Jesus has for his disciples. Listen, look at verse 24. I desire, this is what he's praying out loud, I desire that they also whom you have given me, hang on, just hang on there. I can imagine that if my brother and I were there as disciples, as the first listeners to Jesus, and we were sitting there, we would have been wondering about some of the things that he said. But then as soon as he prays this, I desire that they also whom you have given me, and Jeff would have nudged me and, hey, Russ, that's us. That's got to be us. Who else can it be? It's got to be us. And it is us, isn't it? We're believers. It is us. 
He says that they may be with me where I am. Hey, see, we are going. He's not leaving us behind. We're going with him. That, he would have told me that again. And to see my glory that you have given me because you love me from the foundation of the world. Oh, now this would have, we would have been on our feet. Hey, we are going with Jesus. We are going to see his glory. We knew there was something important about this man. We knew that he was the son of God. He's going to bring his kingdom and he's going to be doing something. He's going to be doing those things. So we're on the right track. We're on the winning side. You see, there would have been huge excitement just with that one verse. You see, and this my point I'm making is that you and I are involved. The disciples were involved in Jesus' prayer here. He's including them. And in his prayer, Jesus lifts the disciples to the divine realm of where Jesus himself lives. And it's about our eternal state. It's about our future home. The prayer is from the heart of Christ. It's from, and he prays to the Father, that, and the Father desires that the Father's, uh, 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 will be, his will will be accomplished. He wants to answer the request that Jesus makes because the prayer comes from the Father. And so this is certainly about you and me and about every other believer. And note too that Jesus is praying to the mighty God. He's praying to the Father. He's our Father God and no one else can do what Jesus is asking of the Father. He's praying to the right God. He's praying because he's, he's praying this because We're his children. This prayer is for none other than the children of God and for every believer. And if it's for the ones the Father has given to Christ, then this prayer is also for the believer, every believer that walks on this earth. You see, there's nobody, and the point I want to make here is that there's nobody left out that's believer in Christ. And as we heard this morning, if you walk through that door and Christ is the only door, then this prayer is for you and it's for me. We can't excuse ourselves. We can't say, hang on uh, out the side and just, yeah, well, I'll just drift along. No, no, no. This prayer, this is what Jesus has prayed for you and for me personally. We're involved. There's only one true God. There's an immediate implication that if we are the children of God that Jesus is praying for, then we will listen up. We need to know what it means to be sanctified. We need to know what it is to be sanctified in the truth because that's what Jesus is praying about. And while we're not the immediate listeners to Jesus' prayer, and to the audible voice of Jesus, Jesus' prayer resounds today with the same heart, with the same truth, with the same power, with the same goal, and equally the same effectiveness. Because Jesus, if Jesus was here in person, he would be praying the same thing, and he is, because his word is alive and it's living, and it's in the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus is praying. And his prayer is resounding throughout all time for you and for me. And this is his words. It's as if he was here today speaking the words. And he says, sanctify them. And this has two aspects as mentioned before. But first let's talk about what it means to sanctify them. What does sanctification mean? These are amazing, extraordinary words. It's not just 
with the backdrop of the secular world that we listen to this, they scorn the Word of God, but it's even against the backdrop of many churches today, the modern church culture that does not view the Word of God as truth. See, Jesus' prayer tells us that Jesus believed the Word of God was truth, and it's the sanctifying agent by which you and I are separated from the world so that we can bring glory to God. Jesus believed that. It's an amazing thing that the world certainly doesn't believe it, but the amazing thing is that many churches today, many Christians, don't believe that the Word of God is the truth. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's the sanctifying agent that God knows brings about the task to accomplish the task that God wants for us. No, and so that no one will ever, ever doubt what that really means, Jesus says it very, very plainly. Let me read it. It's four words. It says, your word is truth. I don't know how people get that mixed up today. They don't understand that. It's not a, ambiguous. It's not hard to understand. It's just four words. There's one syllable in each word. Even the youngest of believers can understand this. And it says, your word is truth. It's the word of God that sanctifies the believer. It sanctifies us, cleanses us. And the word sanctify is continually used in Scripture. And it means to set apart for some special, or to be set apart for some special or holy purpose. It's used to describe someone or something that is wholly consecrated and dedicated to the things of God or to God Himself. It refers to the process and the result of making the people of God holy. It's to make them pure and holy in character, which will work out in life's actions. So the Lord here is saying that the Word of God is the power and the sphere in which all of that sanctification happens. It can't happen outside of the Word of God. It can't happen with another word from someone else. It's going to happen and can only happen with the word of God because Jesus prayed it. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is something that church pastors and elders and the people of God need to hang on to and protect with all their life because their life depends on it. Not just this life, but it's the future life and eternal life that depends on these words. Your word is truth. And there's many today who do not consider that the Word of God is true, that it is the truth, or that it is truth in and of itself. It is true. It's truth in the Word. It's there. The Word is truth. And many deny that. But it's the only Word that will sanctify God's people. It's the word of God, which is truth that makes itself, makes people holy and sets them apart. It's the very agent that works in your life and my life to make us holy unto God. And so what does it mean for me as a person then to be sanctified? If God has chosen me from before the foundation of the world to set me apart, to sanctify me, to consecrate me, 
for his use, what, what does that really mean? How does he do that? To be sanctified is a positive action. We need to understand that. It's a positive action that happens to the Christian. Listen, previously Jesus had prayed to the Father in verse 11. He says, Father, keep them in my name. And then he affirms to the Father that he himself has kept them in the Father's name and that he has guarded them from the evil one. And so we can picture that in our minds. We've been rescued from the world of darkness. We've been chosen. We've been uh, through the blood of the cross, through salvation, through regeneration. God takes us and he places us now in his family and God protects us. His word protects us. Jesus protected them. He didn't want to lose any of them that the Father had given him. There's this protection, but there's this status quo. And God doesn't want us to stay there. There's this positive action just being protected is not enough. Sanctification is more than that. He set us apart unto something. And so many Christians can be saved or so-called saved and be happy in their status quo and do nothing for God but attend church every Sunday and they've done their thing. they put their right clothes on. They say the right words but they don't really want to get involved in the business of God. They're not really set apart in their actions or their attitudes. And so here Jesus, it's not, a, it's not enough to remain status quo or to be happy with that. There's this positive action that's to happen in our lives. It's more than just resting. It's, the Lord is praying here for us to grow. To, we're, in the, we're to progress in our Christian faith. We're saved, but then he wants us now to be more holy and to grow in the knowledge of Christ. He wants us to be more like Christ every day as we live through life. And it's the word of God that keeps setting us apart as it changes us and molds us. And so we're to do the work of the Father. He, he wants progress. He wants spiritual growth. He doesn't want us to stay just as we are. He wants us to do the work of the Father. And I want to say, young person here today, and older person, to everyone, don't just rest in your salvation. Because you see, salvation is for a sanctification process. It's for a growth process. Get out of, if you're in it, the slothful mood that so many Christians are in today. And when they stay there, and you know what? They love their sin. And they manage their sin, and we know, all know what that's like. We've got the sin in our lives, we know it, but you know, we can manage it, and we can still get on and have a good life. We can play our role in the church, we can look good, but you know what, we've still got the sin in our lives that we're just happy to live with, because we love sin. And so here, the Lord is about, he's praying that, getting sanctified, when we need to get in line with God's plan that he prayed 2,000 years ago that still resounds through all the ages and eternity, even now, for you and I to be sanctified, to grow in him. In my role as pastor, so many people will come to church and I have this big board, it's like that, and they've got a problem with my life or I've got a problem with my wife or, or whatever it might be. And the, their life is going to cost it a little. And so generally, after a little bit, I'll, I'll write up on the board and I'll go right to the right hand. I said, tell me how you want to live, whether it's for your marriage or whatever it is. And so we list down the far side of the board. We list down all the things. Of what they, and it's a beautiful, godly picture. They know it all. 
You see, that's, that's what, how God wants us to be. That's, that's what I love to be in my life. I say, okay, so we write all those things down because there's the goal. Okay. So we come over to the side of the board and we ask, and I ask so, so what's evident in your life? What characterizes you now? Oh, and it's a mess. There's arguing, there's fighting, there's separation, there's division, there's all the things that you list. I don't want that. It's making my marriage too hard. I've I got to somehow change. So you want to get in the sanctification process. Well, you know what? You've got to go to the Word. And so therefore, the gap between the two, how long do you want to take to get there? Oh man, I want to get there quick. So I bet you don't. You see, because I know the heart or the nature of how, because I'm one too. I'm a sinner as well, saved by grace, praise God. But you see, I know people find it too hard to go to the far side. You see, and so we'll go through a counselling stay, we'll go through several weeks, oh, and it's wonderful, they tidy up the sin in their life. But halfway, they get into the stage now where they can manage their sin, and so therefore, and the counselling drops off, they don't want to go the full length. You see, Jesus knows that too, and he says, sanctify them with the truth. And he wants us to be more like Christ. He wants us to keep growing, and as long as we're alive in this world, and as long as we're breathing, there's still sanctification process to happen because that's what Jesus prays for you and for me. And so many of us stop halfway because we still love some sins. We still look okay to the world and to the Christian community and we can manage the sins. But God doesn't want you to manage your sins. He wants you to get rid of them, put them off so that you can be like Christ. He wants us to get in line with God's plan that he prayed for you 2,000 years ago that's still effective today and is still praying today. And so we ask, well, what does God want to set his people apart unto? Well, we can't unfold every aspect of sanctification. There's just two aspects of the sanctification process that, that we'll look at. If you're taking notes, here it is, consecrated unto God for service unto God. Consecrated unto God for service unto God. This is what the Father desires of us. And so I draw your attention to the use of the word in, uh, of uh, sanctification or consecration in verse 19 of chapter 17. And it says, And for their sake, this is Jesus praying, For their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. Wow. See, Jesus consecrated or sanctified himself, so it cannot be that this means a cleansing from sin because Jesus had no sin. There's another element to the sanctification process. See, there was no fault at all in Jesus. And the Holy Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is not about being saved, the use of the word here. It's not about being saved and cleansed from sin, but rather it is that the saved person be consecrated wholly and totally unto God. Even as Jesus was in his work of service, as he busied himself only with the things of God. He was about to do, he was always about doing the Father's will. He desired to do nothing else. He faced the greatest trial in his life here in this prayer, just hours away, was his greatest trial. He faced the cross and he prayed, not my will, 
but your will be done. See, he had no other calling but to do the Father's will and to set himself apart to do that. And as Jesus is praying, he's pleading with the Father that all God's people be consecrated, sanctified and set apart for the Father's use. He's praying, Father, set them apart to yourself even as I have been set apart to do your will. He's praying, Father, let them be holy unto you. Father, let them have hearts and minds and wills that seek to do your service continually and always. Father, let them be the temple of your own indwelling. Father, let them be instruments consecrated unto service for your work on this earth. And we can easily understand the idea of consecration. Because, you see, there's a history of it with the children of Israel of what's consecrated and what's sanctified or set apart for God's use. And we go to the Old Testament, Leviticus, and find that. And here the Lord instructed Moses on how and what should be consecrated unto him. There was the tabernacle, there was the utensils, there was the altar, there was the oil of anointing poured out on, on the people, on those utensils, so that they would be holy for the Lord. They weren't to be used for anything else. They were clean and holy and totally dedicated to the Lord. You know what? You can't. It's not like church today when you're having a party at home or something at home and you're running short of dishes and you need an urn or you need something. Let's get it from the church. It's a little bit different to that. You couldn't go up and take the utensils from the temple and take them home because you got a party on that day. You see, these things were wholly consecrated unto the Lord. But there's an image coming through here. Because you and I are wholly consecrated unto the Lord. We're not for our own use in that sense. And remember Achan. He took spoil from Jericho, did he not? He took spoil from Jericho and hid it in under his tent, under the bed in his tent. And you see, those things in Jericho were already consecrated unto the Lord and he stole, he took what was God's and he put it in his tent for his own use. And beloved, he and all his family died. And that wasn't just an event in history. That was there for your learning and my learning so that we would fully understand what consecration is. When we're consecrated to the Lord and that happened when God saved you, We've got to be careful how we live. And if you're finding it hard to live as God wants you to live, then, beloved, read the Word. It consecrates you. It sets you apart. Elkin and his family died. And we can go through lots of other illustrations too. There was a family chosen from the tribe of Levi, Aaron and his sons, and they were set apart. They were sanctified for the Lord's use. And we read in Leviticus how there were animals sacrificed and the blood was taken and holy oil was taken. It was sprinkled on Aaron and his sons and on their clothes because they were separated unto the Lord for the Lord's service to do work that no one else could do but the men that were chosen and the holy vessels that were chosen. They were holy vessels to do holy work for God. They served the Lord in the temple, we read in Leviticus. They performed duties that only them alone could perform because they were consecrated unto God. 
And in the courts of the tabernacle, there was holy fire, there was holy bread, there was holy oil. And all of those things could not be used for other purposes. And that's the point here. That's the point that the consecrated things, the sacred things, the things set apart for the Lord, they were only for the Lord to be used for his holy purposes. And the holiness of the place where the people worshipped with all these holy things was a continual reminder that God is holy. And these things were consecrated. And here there was the people consecrated too unto the Lord. They couldn't mistake it, but it's there for our learning. And so when Jesus comes to pray, sanctify them, consecrate them, set them apart, we understand because we've got 2,000 years of the history of the children of Israel is to understand what holiness is with the sacrificial system that was in the Old Testament. And you see, here's the point here, is that the Lord Jesus, as he faces the greatest hour of all eternity, past and present, he prays the greatest prayer. It's a prayer from the heart highlighting the deepest desire for the people whom God had chosen before time began. He prays, sanctify them. Keep them set apart. Keep them growing in holiness. See, this is no fickle prayer. He's praying that his people be holy, sanctified, consecrated unto the Father to continue the work that he himself, as he himself returns to the Father. This is no light prayer, beloved. This is a prayer for you and me, and it's on the heart of God that Christ prays this for our learning. He wants you and me to continue the work that Jesus now is not continuing because he's gone back to the Father. And he's set us apart to do the very things that God wants us to do. And you see, Jesus himself has set the example and he sanctifies himself to the service of the Father. See, this gives us a wonderful understanding as to what it is to be sanctified. He lived holy and he separated himself into service to his heavenly Father. He never busied himself with anything but the Father's work and the Father's glory. That is what the Lord would have for each of us. Consecrated, dedicated unto the Lord. Set apart totally for the Lord's use and for his divine purposes. And how does he do that? He doesn't do that with holy oil or the blood of animals or put on Sunday clothes or sacred clothes or a special Sunday seat in church. It's not how you're sanctified. But it's by the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That doesn't mean to say that we all become pastors or elders or missionaries. Praise God if that did happen. But it really means that whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. You'd be a builder or a teacher or a husband or wife to the glory of God. You'd be a student, a sports person, a doctor, whatever it might be, a singer or a musician unto the glory of God. Originally you were set apart by the precious atoning work of the Son on the cross of Calvary. You were set apart then. We're not 
belong to the world or to Satan because God redeemed us when he set us apart. He's redeemed us. We're now his. You and I belong to Christ. And he presents us to the Father and he pleads to the Father to accept us and to sanctify us and make us holy even as he himself is holy. And we should cry out to him that incredible amen. We need to say, Father, and join in with the heart of Christ as he's praying here. Yes, Lord, please make me holy for your service. Let not my heart be drawn away to the attractions of the world. Let not my affections be ever taken up with the passions of the flesh or unholy conversations or personal gratification or any selfish ambition. Oh, Father, make me holy. Sanctify me for your service. People of God, we belong to Christ. We're not our own. We're heaven bound. We live and free because we live in the power of the indwelling Christ. We live in the joy of the indwelling Spirit. We live for one purpose and with one passion and that is to serve in obedience to Christ. For we've been sanctified, are we not, by the Word of God. That's the living Word of God. There's no other Word of God but the living Word of God. It is Christ in the written Word that has been revealed to us and it's through Him that we are being sanctified. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Your Word is truth. Beloved, immerse yourself in the Word of God. The Word of God is the living Christ and the Word of Christ is truth which sanctifies us. No matter which way you look at it, you turn it around, it's the Word of God that sets us apart and sanctifies us and makes us then of use to the Father. And so we need to be doing a self-check. Ask yourself this. Is your sanctification measurable? I came to the point one time when I didn't think that mine was. And some might still doubt that even now. But I was really had a burden on my heart that I wanted to be a better husband. I need to let the Word of God have greater effect in my life and I did something really dangerous. I said to my wife, I said, we're going away for the weekend and I want you to read a chapter in Kent Hughes' book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, and it's the discipline of marriage. And I was challenged by a lot of things that he said in there. I said, I want you to read that chapter and here's an exercise book and I want you to write down all the things that you think I could change in. And we're going to go away for a weekend and that's all we're going to think about, the Word of God and how that I can bring my life into the line with the Word of God more. My desire was, was, was honourable, I think. <laughs> my wife was very, very gracious and she didn't fill up too many pages. <laughs> I'm still working through them and that was about 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> I've never had another weekend like that. <laughs> I haven't been game enough. <laughs> but you see, I wanted the Word of God to change my life. So often we get into the Christian rut and we stay the same. We put up with each other's sin and there's no uh, uh, endeavour to try and change and to be like Christ. 
And if you've never had a weekend like that, man, husbands and wives, I suggest you have a weekend like that with prayer and the Word of God and a wife to help you separate yourself or to see that the things in your life are honouring God. It enriches your marriage if you're married. See, is your sanctification measurable? Are the habitual sins and those flaws in your character that you feed and protect, are they fading away so that you're looking even more like Jesus today than what you did a year ago? Why are you slothful in your approach, sleeping when it comes to being sanctified by the Word? So under the sanctification process, firstly it's consecrated unto God for the service for service unto God. And here's the second aspect of the sanctification. Consecrated unto God, separated from the world. Now I draw your attention to verse 10 and following. Verse 10 in chapter 7 he says, All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Well, can we read that again? All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. God, Christ, is glorified in us. Christ is glorified through the life of the believer. And that's a powerful challenge, it's powerfully challenging to know that Christ is, or the Lord has set you and me apart to be the specific purpose of putting the glory of Christ on display in this world. That's an incredible calling, but God doesn't leave us helpless. He gives us a spirit to help us, but that's beside the point here today. But here's the task that you and I have been given. God has set you aside. He's given us his glory so that we can bring glory to him in this world and show the glory of God in this world. And he says, how are we to do that? Or we ask, how are we to do that? Look at verse 14. I have given them your word. Remember that Christ is the word. The word has been manifested to them and that the word of Christ, uh, and it is the word of Christ that, that they have faithfully received and that word has made them strangers in the world. See, even being strangers in the world brings glory to God because it says here in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Christ was hated by the world. He was crucified and yet he comes to this point in his life. He says, Father, I brought you glory on this earth by, by doing the things and completing the things that you've given me to do. And so therefore, when you're hated by the world and you're a stranger in this world, you're bringing glory to God because you're standing up for him. You're letting people see Christ in you. See, the, Jesus was sanctified unto his Father and separate from the world. And because we have the word and believed on the word and we follow after the word and we're people of the word, we too are separated from the world and we're hated by the world. Jesus could easily ask the Father, when they say, Lord, take them out of this world. But he didn't ask that. He says, Father, protect them in the world because he's got a role for you and me in this world. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, from the time the God of all grace set his saving grace upon you and upon me, we have been singled out by him for separation uh, to be distinct from the world. 
See, your name was written in heaven. You were washed in the blood of Christ from all your sin. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, marking you as God's and God's alone and no one else's. You are eternally protected by the power of God from the evil one. You have the promise of God that all things will work together for good in your life. You see, God is on our side. And even though we're strangers in the world bringing glory to God, nothing's going to happen to us that's going to take away eternal life or the safety and the protection of God. We're going to look different when we let the Word of God change us. We're going to be separate from this world. We're going to look different. We're going to sound different. We're going to think different. We're going to smell different. We're going to love differently. We're going to speak differently. And we're going to serve differently. We're going to love differently. And we're going to live differently. We're totally and utterly separate and strangers in this world. See, all of that spells out separation. And it means that you and I are going to suffer. We're going to suffer, and, but it's nothing compared to the glory that we are going to receive in a coming day. And in fact, the glory is so great. The future that you have, you're going to enjoy the suffering because it's going to affirm to you that you don't belong here. When you have opposition for standing up for righteousness and for Christ and you're separate and you come across ridicule or you're ridiculed because of it, it doesn't bring shame in your heart. It brings joy. Because you belong to the Father. The Lord knows that we're going to have problems. We have this flesh as well even that we've got to combat with and our flesh is enmity with God. It's not just at war with God, but in itself it's enmity with God. And we've been elevated in our salvation to the heavenly places, to the warfare, we read in Ephesians, where there's 24-7 battle with the, um, the, the heavenly realm against the evil angels, against Satan. Satan's after your soul 24-7. But here are the promises, don't worry. You see, you're protected by God. Jesus has prayed for your protection. And we have trials that test our faith and and even at times make our heart tremble. But Jesus prays. He prays the prayer that protects every believer from all evil power. He prays and he pleads to the Father. And this is what he prays. You might have heard it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Beloved, the Lord would have those who are dedicated and consecrated unto him. He'd have them separated from the world. Verse 16 says, They're not of this world, just as I am not of the world. That marks us different. That marks the church is different. But I'm not convinced today that the church of God is too much different from the world. There are those today who teach and practice the different teachings a different teaching to that of, of what Christ has taught. Instead of being separate from the world, they work hard to be, be, to be like the world. It's amazing. They try and attract the world by assimilating into the world. The churches themselves put aside the Word of God and replace it with man's Word. And to do that, they work on the philosophy of the world. That to win the, they work on this philosophy that to win the world, you need to be like the world. You need to make the unbeliever comfortable so that somehow you can draw them. And it all comes down to your theological understanding of salvation. God wants us to be separate. He knows 
But sometimes man thinks they know better and there's many of them thinking they know better than God and so they have their churches and teach their churches to be more like the world. They want to be accepted by the unbeliever and they give messages that puts the person at ease. And in so doing, they strip away the very sanctification process that God wants for the Christian to even be better. And in fact, it's encouraging the Christian to actually be like the world. Shame. Shocking what a tragedy it is in our churches today when those messages are being preached. The pulpits muffle the truth. They fail to preach it with clarity. And when there's no clarity, then there's confusion. And the sanctifying message that God has for us is lost in the world. And so we don't have a church. There's a church anymore. But it's a club. It's not shining out holiness and purity and difference. Church today languishes in a weak and pathetic form of Christianity that makes it nigh impossible to see any separation in the world in individual lives, hearts or practices. Spurgeon writes this, The more distinct the line between him that feareth God and him that feareth not, the better all round. The more distinct the line between him that feareth God and him that feareth not, the better all round. And he makes the point with this. He says, how tragic the day would be if the sun turned to darkness. How tragic. How disastrous when the salt loses its savour, for then it will have lost its purifying effect. And people of God, how awful, how tragic, how sad it is when the Christian rejects God's sanctification process and they leave out the Word of God and they disobey the Word of God and they ignore the Word of God, for the glory of God and of Christ will not be seen in the world through His people when they leave out the Word of God. The world will rush into hell and there will be no light and no purifying effect for the, from the Christian the Christian became like the world and the church became like the world. Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I chose you out of the world. I chose you to be different. The Lord would have us as individuals and churches consecrated unto himself and separated from the world. There's no other position for God's people, is there? The Lord has strong warnings through James for those who reject his counsel. You know the verse well. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And if we are to live in the world and to be effective in the world for Christ, then how are we to do that? We're to be consecrated unto God. We're to be continually being sanctified and to be made like Christ. But how do we do that? Set ourselves apart or read the word of God. Be set apart in the truth. Your word is truth. And when we, when we let the word of God shape us in our character and direct us in our heart attitude and mould us in our thinking, when we put the word of God into effect in our lives, it will grow our hearts and our lives to service and dedication unto God, to separation from the world and unto him in regard to the world's systems and passions. We'll be utterly and totally different. We will be of use for the master. See, the church of God will be the lampstand. I get that right. The lampstand that's holding out the light of Christ in this world. 
and in the community in which the church lives. You'll be hated by the world, but oh, how wonderful, because you'll be a saver of life to those whom God is calling to himself. You'll be Christ to those who are being saved. How beautiful it will be when, you turn, when people turn to God because the church, the individual, has displayed the glory of God in their life and the God, people that God is calling are attracted by that and they see him and they turn to Christ when they hear the gospel. See, Jesus is praying this prayer that still echoes with the same love and passion and desire as when the Savior first uttered the words. And this is what he's praying. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we come to our second point. It's a little bit briefer. It's our concluding point. What's the word of truth? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying, Father, make them holy in the truth. You see, holiness and truth go together. You can't have holiness and error and expect a holy person to come out of that or to produce holiness in a person's life. Holiness is never produced by a belief in something that is false. Presently, the Lord is putting on display on the world's stage for all to see the Muslim views expressed through the ISIS movement and the radicals. That's to the zenth degree There you have doctrinal falsehood and lies producing what doctrinal falsehood and lies will always produce. That's death or sin and evil and eventually death. And then, of course, there's eternal death that follows that. But doctrinal truth and holiness holds hands together and they produce sanctification, Christ-likeness. They'll grow a person to be like Christ. And while the example I've just used is to the extreme, I know. But you see, it doesn't stop there. Error trips up the Christian. It starts generally with ever such a small step. The shift increases with time. If the Word of God is not the truth, and you don't consider it the truth, And you can have a relatively good Christian life and fellowship, but you see, it's the person after you that's going to be destroyed because, you see, they haven't got the foundation that you once had that you moved from. And it's illustrated in Harold Linsell's book, In the Battle for the Bible. Here he uses the analogy of the continental divide that sheds water either into the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean. You've got America, continent in between. And the... the, um, continental divide starts up in Alaska, it comes down through Canada, goes right down through North America and down into Mexico. And, and it divides the land. And when it rains, right at the top of the mountain, there's only that much between two do- raindrops. But depends on which side of the mountain it falls as to which ocean it ends up in, and it's a world apart, the oceans. And he says this, there's a world of difference, he says this, errancy and inerrancy, that's error and truth, 
constitute the two principles and which one a person chooses determines where he will end up. The generation of those who first gave up biblical inerrancy have, may have a warm evangelical background and real personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that they can live theologically on the basis of their limited inerrancy viewpoint. But what happens when the next generation tries to build on that foundation? You see, to understand and believe and to hold to the truth is vital for the foundational stone on which the Christian grows spiritually and passes that truth on to the next generation. And that's what God wants us to do. That's what he, Christ was praying for in the garden. In this John 17 prayer, he says, praying for those who are going to be saved by these people who preach. And he's praying also for the people that are going to get saved through the preaching of this generation. You need to be preaching the truth. You need to be living the truth. You need to be setting that example and being holy and consecrated and set apart unto God because, you see, that's the foundation, again, for the next generation of how you've viewed the Word of God and how you've lived accordingly. And we need to ask, what is the truth? The truth is something that is revealed... uh, Well, is it something that's revealed to me by some private communication or someone, uh, even God... What is, what is truth? What is the truth that's talked about? Do I wait for some special revelation from God to reveal to me what the truth is so that then I can act on that and be sanctified with this extra word that God has for me or personally? And there are many today who supposedly say that that is how you are to get truth and that's how you're set apart by God. Go for an extra word from God. In fact, people easily use that Uh, phraseology. They say, God said to me or God spoke to me. And they speak as if God has personally spoken to them. But listen. Listen to this profound statement from the Lord. You probably know it off by heart by now. This is what Jesus says. And he only says what the Father wants him to say. And here it is. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We can't mistake that. That's understandable, isn't it? Your word is truth. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And what a blessing we have for all that is necessary to sanctify us and to set us apart and consecrate us for God, to serve us for the world is the truth of God. Your word is truth. We need to expand ourselves in the study of the Word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the truth. We cannot just read the Word and think that we're going to be holy and separated. It's more than that. We need to immerse ourselves in and study the Word. We need to take the Word of God like a young man takes the letter, the love letter. I think they might write them still today. I know I got a few when I was courting. And I would take the letter and I would read every word and I would explore the depth of every word to extract from it every love sense and love word or motion that was in the word. I wanted it all. Oh, I, I, I would read that probably to my ship more than what I read the Bible, every letter that I got. You see, so we're to take the Scriptures. Here's the love letter from God. Here's the thing that sets us apart from God. It's the Word of God. We're to take it and explore it. Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to study or present yourselves to, as a proof. Sorry, let me start again. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing the Word of truth. See, Paul understood 
that the Word of God is the thing that sanctifies a person. And so he's encouraging Timothy, study the Word of God. Don't be ashamed. See, I fear for a lot of believers, they get through life. They've never studied the Word. They've never let the Word set them apart. And so there's not so much sanctification for them, but there will be a coming day when they will feel shame and no shame. The writer of the Hebrews, he rebukes the people of his day, saying to the people, you have not actually obeyed the word of God. You've stuck on milk. You've never put into practice the things that you know to be right. You've missed out on the sanctification process, so you're still infants and you can't understand or even teach the Word of God. You should be teaching the meat of the Word of God, but I'm still having to teach you the milk of the Word of God because you've never put it into practice. He says in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have the senses trained to discern good and evil. Beloved, if you're ever going to be sanctified and set apart for holiness and for God, you need to know what the difference is between good and evil. You need to be able to discern those immediately and you will never discern them until you already put into the practice the things that you already know about the Word of God. That's clear. That was the problem. It's there written for our learning. They hadn't put it into practice. They weren't turning out to be like Christ. They were created problems and difficulties for themselves. They were hooked into the world or the religious world of that time where Christ wasn't in. See, the Lord desires that we be pure and holy and the doctrinal truth of the life of God's child will produce what God wants in us. And that's to be set apart for him for his use. And this verse 17 declares that the living word of God is that which sanctifies the believer. It's the Father's word which Jesus had given to the disciples as he himself had received it from the Father. It's the very message with which we proclaim his name that would have his sanctifying effect. It's the word of truth. No other message. It's the written message as we have it today. It's called the word of truth. And when we busy ourselves and bury ourselves in the word of truth, it affects our daily lives. It destroys sin in our life. It draws us closer to the likeness of Christ. It will develop in us hearts to love and serve him. It will drive us to incredible feats so that we serve beyond our human ability and we serve in the power of the giftedness of his spirit and the power of the word of God because we've been set apart, we've made holy and God can use us for all that he wants to use us for and has gifted us for. And so I ask in concluding, will you let Christ renew your hearts for his word and give you a love for his word so that you'll read it and that you'll fall into line with the sanctification process that God has set apart by reading and studying and drinking and feeding on the Word of God. Will you do that as personal people? Will you pray this prayer for your church? Because our church is needed. That the Word will be a preeminent place, have a preeminent place in the church. That your pastor will always preach the Word. 
that you'll ask for protection of the pastor's life, that he will never be taken up with anything of the world, but he will then busy himself in the study of the Word of God so that he can bring truth so that you and I and your children and your grandchildren can be sanctified and set apart for eternal glory. Young person, will you love Christ enough to want to be like him in all purity and holiness and fit in with the sanctifying work of the word of God in your life. You do that? It'll mean that you need to read it, you need to study it, you need to set time aside. You need to treat it as preeminent in your life because you'll never come to anything for God unless you read the word because it's through the word that he sets you apart. May the Lord bless you. That the Lord have the last say. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray together. Father, we say thank you for your word. And Father, as we study your word and we evaluate our lives in the light of your word, we fall short. We think of the things that we didn't do and we should have done, but other things took our time. But Father, increase our love for your word because in the word is Christ. We can't separate the word and we can't separate Christ. We don't want to study your word just because it's intelligence or it's knowledge. Father, whenever we read it, whenever we study it, let us come face to face with the living Christ. Let your word be intimate in our lives. Let it be powerful. Let it be effective, we pray because we want to be set apart and sanctified, consecrated unto you for your service. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name.